0: I had to fill in and uh, help Carlos out and serve y'all, I like, have opportunities to minister to the other congregations in our Presbyterian, it so worked out that, uh, Tim Dryden, is Tim not here to preach? No. No, okay. No, oh, I'm sorry, that we'll get you to Tim next time. Uh, our social pastor was, uh, preaching our church this morning, so I so said, hey, we'll come on up, so it works out, uh, works out great. Um. My first experience in the PCA was a church meeting in a school, and uh, actually we were meeting, it was, a, it was a church plant. We were meeting in the practice room of the Winston-Salem Symphony, so it wasn't even school? It's a school, it was a practice room. Uh, but, it, but it really instilled in my heart from the very beginning of my Christian life uh, just a love for the church plants and for all the energy. I know it can be wearying sometimes because you got to set it up and tear it down. Uh, When I finished seminary, I uh, interned a church up in northern Virginia, and uh, they were, uh, they weren't a church plant, but they were building a building, and they'd already outgrown their old building, so they couldn't even keep meeting because the parking was too small, so we met in high school for a year and a half while they were building a new building, and uh, they were, I remember, in, in case some of y'all are worried about the move next week, some of y'all are pretty, pretty excited about it, I'm sure. When they when I got there, they had just moved into this high school, and they were fretting because they were building this big building. They were expanding. They were saying, oh, we're going to lose people because we're going to be in a, how, in a school. We're going to be so uh, impersonal. And they actually grew from 400 to 750 in a year and a half meeting in a high school. <laughs> and wow. they had to start out with two services and a brand new pool. <laughs> so needless to say, we uh, the will. Things I love, love being in, the, in this kind of a setting and uh, with church plants, uh, the Lord church plants my heart very, very early on. And I've prayed for uh, and, and just watched this church over the years. I knew uh, Crown Elizabeth way back when he was at seminary and I took them through uh, Sonship because I was down in Mississippi at the time. And uh, and then, of course, with uh, Carlos coming on board, and just I uh, love him. Like crazy. Well, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis 3. I want to talk this morning about spiritual warfare uh, with you, and particularly Satan's strategy for attack and how to be less blindsided by it and to be a little more able to absorb the assaults because they will come. In fact, I don't know if I've had a time that I've taught or preached on spiritual warfare that <laughs> something didn't happen. But sure enough, I climbed my car this morning and turned the key, and it was crickets. Great. So my wife was gonna go on over to New Covenant, but I ran inside and she was still getting dressed. I said, "Sorry, I'm stealing your car and your keys because I gotta get up. I've no time to jump my car." So uh, assaults will come. Uh, As we as we get ready to read Genesis, the first part of Genesis three is a real familiar passage. Of course, it comes right after Genesis two. And that's where God had created everything. He created Adam and Eve, and it was a perfect place in Eden, and it was a perfect climate. 72 degrees, (laughs) no (laughs) humidity. They had a perfect mate, if you can imagine. No sin. They looked at God as their provider, and they trusted he was gonna do everything they needed. And he had the power to do it, and he had the goodness that he would do it well, and he would do it kindly to them. And then of course we have entered the serpent. So let me read the first seven verses of Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves one clothes. Let me pray and ask God to help us understand why this to our lives. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you revealed to Moses what had happened that day. As everything came tumbling down. Thank you, Father, that you revealed to us. You've preserved it. So we would understand why everything's so broken. Why, why we're so broken. Why the world operates the way that it does. We pray that your spirit would give us further insight uh, to uh, adapt this to our lives. Uh, Father, I have no idea what's going on in each life and heart. Uh, here this morning, but you do, and so I pray that you, by your Spirit, would, would customize uh, the things we reflect on, and even the the, the reflections within people's hearts uh, as we think about these things, uh, for your glory, for our benefit. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, here's Adam and Eve, and they're created, and what what's the best thing they have going for them? It's God. I mean, God is right there and he's, he's accessible. And so what they did was they trusted him and they relied on God. And he made everything and so they'd seen his power. When he had spoken everything into being, they didn't question his, his ability to do things. And he walked in the garden with them and they knew that he was good. So kind of the, the two uh, pillars of the character of God, his power and his goodness were in place and God would provide for them and give them counsel and give them guidance. And so they, they had the most complete resource, uh, the ultimate benefit who was right there with them. And all, all what they were called to do was to, to trust God. The way they tapped into that resource was just by trusting him, by believing his goodness and believing his power. And so that's when we talk about faith being at the, at the core of the Christian life, it was from the very beginning. Is will you trust God? Now that involved going out and doing what he said, but doing what he said is to trust him. And that's the whole part behind doing what he says. It's not just that you're working some tick list or some some set of rules so you don't break them or else you get you know you violate it and you're in trouble. It's when we obey God, we're just saying, I trust you. you now some of y'all are parents. And you know, when you you've got some rules for your children, and when they break your rules. I mean, you're, you're bothered that they broke them, but what really cuts you to really the quick is that they broke your rules. You who care for them, you who have not ultimate power, you're not omnipotent like God is, but he knows he's got her because in verse four, then the serpent says, you will not surely die. Now back in chapter two, God had said, don't eat from the tree, it's the fruit from the tree in the middle of the midst of the garden or you shall surely die. The serpent in verse 4, if you were to read it to the Hebrew, the, the, the word order actually says, not you shall surely die. I mean, he just flat out contradicts, he just flat out, you know, lowers the boom. He, he flat contradicts what it is God said. And, he, and so he, he's he's putting in front of her, God is a liar. He just wants, he, he maligns God's power, he says he's limited, he can't do what he wants, so he's trying to get leverage on you. God is trying to use you, Eve. He he can, you can handle it just fine by yourself, but he wants to keep you depending on him. You don't need him, he's just out for himself. You will not surely die, he can't do that. And so he questions God's power, he questions his integrity. And then, of course, you see, and, and, he, and he offers this alternative. You can be self sufficient. Look at verse 5. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you'll be able to make your own decisions. You don't need to be dependent, you will be self sufficient. The theological word is you have know, a which means, which basically just means self sufficiency. And so this this alternative, the ability to determine good and evil on your own, and so, everything changes. Because what the first couple words of chapter verse six say, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight for the eyes, and it was desire to make one wise and to give insight. Now nobody ever said the tree wasn't good for food. Nobody ever said it wasn't a delight to the eyes but all of a sudden it says her eyes have been opened. She is seeing in a whole new way. She's seeing through eyes of reinterpretation. Or you might say, misinterpretation, right? <laughs> Misunderstanding, he's, he's just saying, he's throwing a twist on what God says. Now let me ask you, has God's providence changed here? Have any of the circumstances changed in this, during this conversation? No, it's all, everything's exactly the same the way it was before, isn't it? What changed was Eve's perspective and her perception. Now she mistrusts God. She trusts herself more than God. I need to recognize that when I start saying I, I can trust myself, I have to trust myself, then what I'm saying is that God can't be trusted. Even though I'm not saying he can't be trusted with my words, I'm de facto doing it. Say, so my trust is in myself. You know, I'm really deep within myself and trust what's there. Uh, and that's, <laughs> gets a little lethal. So Satan's strategy is not really complicated, but it's devious. it's crafty. And he's, he wants to douse your faith by coaching you to, to question the reliability of God's power and to question the reliability of his goodness. He, God doesn't, he didn't even need to totally or utterly dispute them. He doesn't say God has no power. He doesn't say God's not good. He just has to put a little wedge in there. He's just got to make just enough to make it unreliable. And you know, it doesn't take a whole lot to cause you to shift your weight off of trust. And if you're sitting in the chair you're sitting right now and you heart starting to hear a creak, you'd be better ready to get up out of your chair. It doesn't mean the chair's falling apart. You don't need a whole lot, you just need a little bit in there to start putting the wedge to say, I don't like trust this. Or same with people or situations. So we need to understand that if, if we wonder if we have questions, if, if God is out for my best interests, by definition, I'll just start fending for myself. In fact, I'll tell you what something was really cool. We were going through the first part of the service uh, to see how the Lord put on the altar. It's like, I'm Ken, read from Proverbs 3, 5. I mean, that's that's what that, that's the background of that. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then what's the second part? mean not on your own understanding see what that means that's what's at stake it's proper that's why i called this your lying eyes it's not going to be a big don henley fan but. <laughs> but uh you know it's we we need to trust our, our perception of circumstances if they differ from god's and that that was one of the hardest things for me to get bored of because i always thought if there was one person i trust is myself uh, and to learn to have a healthy mistrust of how I see things. Let's, let us me talk a little bit about how this works out. Let's just look like practically in your life. The, in your, in, if you have circumstances or problems, the way that God's work things out, when you, find, when you feel like God's history isn't coinciding with your dreams, but what, what you're wanting, and you can't comprehend how that could be good, and so what I do is I, I sever trust, and I pull pull plug. And again, it doesn't take a lot of doubt. I moved I, I move from total trust to pretty much trusting. If I'm if I'm pretty much trusting, it means I'm not trusting. Okay, He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And it removes his glory. You know, maybe, maybe you've got sickness uh, for yourself or somewhere in your family or finances are, are pretty precipitous. Uh, or maybe you got some ragged relationships, and you're just thinking this is just going down the tubes. God's turned against me. I don't know if I can trust God on this. I need to make. I need to fix it. I need to make it right. Or, or your reputation. Maybe your reputation's at stake, and there's some things that are happening. You're, you're not. You're afraid you're going to look bad. See, again, part of the challenge on this is not just that I think about that situation in light of God is that I immediately go to this tunnel vision where all I think of is I need to fix this. I need to make it right. And it's a—it's just this intuitive, innate self-trust. It doesn't mean you're not going to be involved. It doesn't mean that obeying the Lord isn't part of it, that there's no action. It's not this passive type of thing. But it's in the situation, do, do I go to him and say, Lord, you know, how do you speak over this situation? Or like first, and we all do that—we we scurry out, we try to fix it, we try to think, what can I do? We put together all these plans, and then eventually we say, maybe I should pray, or we wait till we're pinned in the corner, and then we say, oh, let me pray. You know, maybe it's stuck with other kids, their children. We got—I know at our church, from several of our elders and just kind of at times when there's their children getting older uh, on their own and. You know, they're, out of their hands and trusting the Lord, you, you see scenarios again when you're sick, your finances, your work, uh, things going on in the church where the outcome isn't what you wish. It's a saint just crawls up your shoulder and he just whispers in your ear. Mm, mm, mm. You, you you know you can't really really trust the Lord others and and he throws all sorts of interpretation twists. See if any sounds familiar. Yeah, he says, yeah, what, what, what do you expect? Being as sorry or slothful or as unspiritual as you are? Of course it you you, 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 you you can't have your back. You shouldn't have your back the way you are. Or well, you start thinking, you know, don't you think he's a little busy rescuing people uh, from the, the hurricane to earthquakes on the other side of the planet? He's a little busy on to power Paul it. Right now. Don't worry about your little situation. You ever hear that, head of that voice? Or you hear voices, God helps those who help themselves. Which is not in the Bible. Or he doesn't care about you. Or God didn't control everything. He expects you to make it happen by the choices you make. Now again, there's a little bit, what's hard is he puts a little bit of truth in any of those. God does work through our choices. But it's not that we trust and put together our choices first and leave him out of the equation. They'll say, you know, you can see clearly how things ought to be unfolding. You know, you can even make people do it right. Or you're the only one who really sees reality. The deal is whatever your circumstances are, whatever the scenario is you're looking at that is, feels like it's troubling and it's not unfolding according to your dreams and your plans, they are God's provision. I mean, y'all as a congregation have a powerful picture of clinging to God's hand being good and being powerful. As you got to watch uh, Carlos and Vielle, you know, just wrestle with what happened to Mark last year. When we want to talk about a proud you know, they embraced it as the Lord, but they also embraced it as God is good and God is powerful. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Right? It doesn't mean it's not gut-wrenching. You know, I would say faith, faith wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't for the part. Right? I mean, the, part of the, the, the hardest part about faith is that we, you feel like you're dangling. It's like a bungee jump and you're just you're, you're dangling or you're dropping and you're saying okay, well, the Lord's got this bungee. He's not going to let it break. Satan's strategy is to reinterpret providence God's history. Now, second part, what's God's strategy and our strategy? Pretty simple. Again, if Satan is gonna attack your brain, if he's gonna attack your thinking about how or whether God's goodness uh, and power are working in this providence, he wants to make you question it. So the way we counter it is we wanna constantly reaffirm God's power and God's goodness. Okay, first of all, we wanna remember the fact that all things are his provision, are his providence. And this is the other cool thing, we sang a song out of Job, I was actually going to read to you from Job 38. Uh, he turns if you want, but I'm going to read verses 4 through 12. But we just sang it. God says, God said to Job. Remember, Job had had it awful. He lost all his crops, all his flocks, all his children in one fell swoop, and then be, he became sick himself. His own body was ravaged, and everybody who knew him rejected him. And God never told him why. I never told him why, but here's what God comes and says to Job at the end. He says, "Where were you when I laid the foundation of earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors?" doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? We have powerful, what God said to Job is Job was really wrestling and wanting to go toe-to-toe with God. He he didn't turn against God, but he just said, let me go talk, go toe-to-toe with God. If I put out my case, God's gonna agree with me. And basically, God says, look, I'm God. You're not, trust me. And then listen to what Job's response. That goes on for a few chapters. Listen to what Job responds in the end. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I've uttered what I don't understand, things too wonderful for me which I didn't know. Hear and I will speak. I'll question you, make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye see you and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He realized that in questioning, starting to question, the attempt of deciding, into questioning what God was doing, he was taking on something way bigger than him. And he repents, and the Word restores him again. The Word restores him without ever telling him why. You and I know why. We read the first two chapters. He never got that window, but we we did get that understanding. Paul in Ephesians one, he says. He says, in Christ, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. Listen to what he says. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, that's hard when you run into the bad stuff. I mean, it's comforting. But it's also hard when we run into the really ugly stuff. Parts of life, right? Doesn't it? That's what it's faith. Will I trust God to know what He's doing in those things that just cut me like a knife? It's not that God's not powerful. That if if God's just powerful and He's not good, that's not good news. Okay, we need to have His goodness tied in His power. Otherwise, He's just random, and, and that's scary. But He's got His goodness tied in there. But what you know? It's interesting is as when He says that. God works all things according to the counsel of as well. He's not just talking about spectacular or unusual things. Sometimes we can reduce God and make God seem little but please don't take offense. But you know if we say oh, that was a God thing. And it was but the fact is everything a God thing. It misses the point that there ain't nothing that is a God thing. The fact that you woke up this morning was a God thing. The fact that you made it here without getting a car up was a God thing. The fact that you came and got the car. that big be God thing too. <laughs> in other words, there's nothing that God's not involved in, and we make God too small if we just look for something real spectacular, special, because then what do you do with all the rest of it? Or what do you do when you go through long seasons and you don't have something spectacular or powerful? Then you start questioning God's presence. And ain't that a lie from a pit of hell, right? If God's always everywhere and you question his presence because you're not having all these sweet, splashy things happening, then you start to not believe God's with you. Instead of, you know, Romans 8.28 says, God works everything according to, to his plan for all those who are who love him and are called according to his name. There's never a second. There's never a, a molecule in the universe, that, including in your life, that doesn't pass under his hands. He is always there. He's always working because of Jesus. I mean, that's, what, that's the beautiful part of the table. When we proclaim the death of Christ, it says the worst thing that ever happened, the most awful injustice and tragedy, the death of the Son of God, who, was perfect, who is God. Who was perfect and holy was killed by human beings, was slaughtered, but God used that for the greatest good to redeem the brokenness of the world, to give us new life. And if He took that and worked all good, the biggest goodness out of it, there's nothing else that He's not working. We just don't, we just don't get to see it an awful lot of the time. So the the, the comfort. Is that he's he's powerful, but he's also good. And you see the goodness again in, in the gospel, in what Jesus has done. Uh, we, we, we read that passage about the temptation in the in the desert. Anything about the temptations? We we heard this. You know, will God provide food for you? Right? He was hungry 40 days. I've I have mean, been fasting for a couple hours and I was at breakfast. And <laughs> and I start getting hungry already. You know, he had 40 days, 40 days. And it says that he was hungry. Go for it. And the temptation is, look, you're God. If you're the son of God, you've got the ability, and he did, to turn that stone into bread. And the question is, you know, will you, try, will, can God provide bread for you? That was the temptation. Is he good enough to provide the bread when I needed? Why were and then even when he tells him, if you throw yourself down from the temple, he, and, you know, the angels will rescue you. Well, he was that would have caused everybody to want to follow him, right? If Jesus went up to the top of the temple and threw himself down with all the thousands of people down there and the angels rescued him, do you think he'd have a few followers? In other words, he was tempted to not go through the cross to get the followers. The temptation was do it with spectacular events instead of going the way of the cross the Father's called you to. He had to trust that God's power and goodness were behind the cross. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had to trust God's power and God's goodness. The goodness, even as he didn't take away the cup and the power that he would rescue him from death. And so Jesus, Jesus did what we don't do in trusting the Father. and He did what we can't do there's the limit And he died to pay for our failure to to trust God. Uh, So, you know, why why would we uh, doubt his his goodness and power? So as we get ready to go uh, to the table, uh, you know, just think about what, what is it in your life? You know, it's, don't get me wrong, it's appropriate to be good and honest and realistic. Okay, to recognize the obstacles you got in your life or the... The, um, the barriers that are there. Maybe things are going on in the church or in your life or work or in your family. But be careful not to think that just because you see the dark clouds in those areas, that's the end of the story. Because we need to be really realistic and also see that they are barriers and obstacles, but God is still all powerful. And he's still all good. So there's a, there's a context for that. So again, as we wrap up, spiritual warfare is... Less about bad or difficult circumstances and more about how you coached to interpret them. Rimes up on your shoulder, whispers in your ear and starts telling you stuff, you know. He tempted Jesus. He masqueraded his voice to sound just like Jesus's voice. He does the same thing for you. They feel like like real reasonable thoughts. I wanna close by by reading to you a poem. It's actually a, a, a hymn that just spells this out. Really well, one of my favorite hymns called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will.